Hi there, and welcome to the podcast, Life as a, a show intently focused on helping people find their professional pathway by exploring and unearthing the details of jobs from around the world. I'm your host, Christopher Schoenwald. There are certain pleasures in life which seemingly cut through culture and locale. That is, what one person may find to be a lovely experience in one geographic region of the world, another individual situated in a completely different area may end up sharing the same level of delight when partaking in the same activity. Resultantly, such indulgence is often observed to have at some point created its own subculture surrounding the activity. A certain vernacular and way of communicating about the pursuit ultimately takes shape whereby those associated with it can begin to discuss and share their thoughts more intimately. You may be wondering, what could this possibly be referring to? Let me fill you in. The art of winemaking and its consumption has been around for thousands of years, and it has come to mean a lot during that time. You could consider notions of lifestyle, business, science, and culture to name a few constructs it has come to represent and be associated with. On today's show, it is this topic of winemaking and all that it means regarding the aforementioned on a regional, national, and global level that we'll dive into. And I couldn't think of a better guest to explore it all with than our guest today. Levi DeLorne is an estate winemaker for Artera Wines Canada in Niagara-on-the-Lake for the Jackson Triggs Winery. Born in a small town outside of Adelaide, Australia, Levi grew up surrounded by vineyards and had a natural curiosity for the winemaking process. After Levi received his degree in food technology and microbiology at the University of South Australia, he landed a seller position at Chateau Yaldara in the Barossa Valley. Yaldara is the indigenous word for sparkling, which coincidentally is Levi's true passion, sparkling wines. In his eyes, they're complex and challenging, but done right, can be magnificent and so rewarding. Levi then switched gears and moved into the laboratory as a senior wine analyst at Hardy Wine Company. During that time, Hardy's was acquired by Constellation Brands, and this afforded Levi the opportunity to work a harvest as a seller hand at Blackstone Winery in Sonoma Valley, California. He later moved back to Adelaide to work as senior wine analyst and vintage seller hand at Constellation Brands. He then took a break from the wine industry and traveled to Japan to teach English for a couple of years where he met his soon-to-be Canadian wife, Tracy. Once back in Australia, he completed his Master's of Oniology at Adelaide University and went on to work with his wife at Wither Hills Winery in Marlborough, where he gained invaluable experience. In 2010, he moved to Canada to work at Flat Rock Cellars, which gave him valuable experience working at a smaller scale winery where fruit was hand sorted and selected, and he learned to appreciate the quality of a gravity-fed winery. He then returned to Australia for another vintage in the heart of the Barossa Valley, working as senior cellar hand at St. Hallett Winery, where he worked with some bold reds and got to experiment with some of Australia's oldest vines. Since 2011, Levi has been using his expertise in the Niagara region, where he's worked as assistant winemaker at Rockway Glen Estate Winery, and then associate sparkling winemaker at Angels Gate Winery and Q Estates Winery, as well as sparkling wine consultant and processing manager for Millicene. 
In late August of 2018, Levi joined Artero Wines Canada as a state winemaker for Jackson Triggs Winery in Niagara-on-the-Lake. His interests span from cooking and traveling to microbrews and all facets of wine. With international experience in winemaking and a specialty in sparkling wine production, Levi was always destined to be a sparkling winemaker. And with that said, Levi, it's an absolute honor to welcome you to the show. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Really well done. Thank you very much. I've forgotten <laughs> where I'd been and what I'd done, to be honest. It's uh, quite the travel, quite the road. Yeah, Thank it is. No doubt, no doubt. It seems that you've been all over the place. And, uh, you know, professionally speaking, it's probably been a rewarding experience. But then all just on the life side of things, it must have been you know, quite interesting as well, too, and all of that. So, you know what? Most of the most beautiful places in the world happen to be winemaking regions. Yeah. Think about yeah, some right. of the places that make wine. It's an incredible way to see the world. Incredible. Oh, I bet. Go to these places, live and work and experience. And yet the beauty around you is phenomenal. Incredible. Yeah. Yeah. For some of the listeners of my program, they might be familiar. I did have another winemaker on earlier in the year and uh, actually from Barossa Valley. And, but she was talking about the same thing. She would travel around to different regions of the world, been South Africa and Europe and, you know, just, just doing batches here and there. And uh, exactly using that sort of professional side to also experience the, the life side of it all too. So you're, you're absolutely right with that. I think that's... Uh, that's why after doing my enology degree, I took my wife with me to New Zealand to do harvest. I wanted her to understand the passion that goes into winemaking. Like we work some ridiculous hours at times over harvest. It can be 12 to 15 hour days. Wow. And you think nothing of it because you get up the next day and just go again. Yeah. So I took her to New Zealand to do this with us. And Wither Hills was an f- incredible winery to work at. We had two, one or two houses on premises on the winery itself and we would all sit down there was probably 10 or 15 interns from around the world and there was belgians and french and germans and south africans and australians and at the end of a 12-hour shift you'd all sit down together and you'd cook a meal you'd open bottles of wine and just talk yeah and she got to understand that she realized that you know you're not just there to make wine there's this incredible passion that goes along with it so she understood the hours that I do and why, why I go about it. It's an incredible yeah, passion. Yeah, and that's, that's kind of an interesting subculture around the whole business that people probably wouldn't be necessarily familiar with either. I mean, I think there's like this whole subculture of the, you know, wine and the consumption of it and what that means in a lot of people's minds. But but that aspect is probably one of the ones that's, it, it's certainly there, but it's a bit hidden and, uh, you know, a really interesting one. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of industries that rely on this these migrant workers that come and work for us. By migrant, I mean people like myself that, that travel the world working and doing harvests. I mean, New Zealand's a prime case for that. Where, and the Riverina and the Brossa Valley and throughout Australia where we rely on people coming to work with us and learning about why. Yeah. It's, it's an yeah. incredible way to see yeah. and experience. No doubt, no doubt. Well, I'm eager to get into all of it today. So why don't we? I do have this first segment lined up, something called Coloring Wikipedia. And basically, it's a segment where I just sort of read off a definition from Wikipedia of the guest profession. I like to do it for a few reasons. One, it sort of brings everybody up to speed on what the job is by definition. But then also, too, I think it's interesting to kind of explore it because I think when a person takes on a role, you know, they put their own stamp on it, you know, and it means something different to them. And they might handle that position much differently than somebody else who's doing the same thing. So the perspectives that kind of, you know, come out of this are, are interesting to, uh, to explore. So of course, surprise, surprise, I do have you down as a winemaker. 
And uh, <laughs> I, I did go with this big catch-all definition from Wikipedia. So let me just read that off for you. And then after, within the context of all your experiences, maybe you can comment. Does it sound good? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. All right, here we go. Winemaker. A winemaker or vinner is a person engaged in winemaking. Duties include cooperating with viticulturists, monitoring the maturity of grapes to ensure their quality and to determine the correct time for harvest, crushing and pressing grapes, monitoring settling of juice and the fermentation of grape material, filtering the wine to remove remaining solids, testing the quality of wine by tasting, which sounds to be the best part of all of it to me, but anyway, uh, placing, filtered wine, <laughs> placing filtered wine in cask or tanks or storage and maturation, preparing plans for bottling once wine is matured and making sure that quality is maintained when the wine is bottled. Today, these duties require an increasing amount of scientific knowledge since laboratory tests are gradually supplementing or replacing traditional methods. Winemakers can also be referred to as oniologists as they study oniology, the science of wine. There it is, a bit of a mouthful. What, what do you think about this? It's a very broad stroke. Yeah, it sure is. It's right? a very, very broad stroke. Going back to front now, a lot of it is bang on. It's what how we do it. It's the process. It's the steps yeah. that we go through to yeah. make wine. An analogist isn't always a winemaker. You can become a winemaker or you can become an analogist. It can almost be two paths in your life where an analogist goes into more the scientific side of winemaking and the research side of, side of winemaking. So we've got onologists within our company that do a lot of the research for us and we go about making wine. If we want to know a specific thing about it, we'll go back to the onologist and say, can you research this for me? I need to know X, Y, and Z. And off they'll mm. go, they'll do the research part of it. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, like it's a broad stroke, but when you're in a winery and you're running a winery, there's a hell of a lot more to it. Like you, you become an electrician, you become a plumber, you become an engineer. You need to know about heating and cooling within the winery. You need to know how to keep that winery running, the logistics of keeping the winery running, the, the repairs, the maintenance. It's not as pretty as it sounds all of the time. There's a lot of hard work and backbone that goes right, into it. Right. You know, like learning glycol systems and how to keep your wines cool and how to keep warm or warm them up when you need them and the pump side of it. And just yeah. you're running a facility. It's not just you're making wine. And, right, right, right. Well, and that's scale, not, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And it's not only like from small scale wineries and boutique wineries, it runs right the way up to, to massive producing facilities, whereby you then, you might not be hands on running the engineering side of it, but you've got an engineer with you that you've got to manage. Yeah. And you have to have a, a general knowledge of what's going on there to be able to make informed decisions, right? Yeah. Absolutely, right. But you learn this from, from working in small wineries and understanding and then extrapolating out as you go. So yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a hell of a lot more to it than, than what Wikipedia has put there, but they've they've got the steps. They've yeah, got the, the basics, steps. the parameters, yeah. essentially. Yeah, Pretty much, pretty much. Yeah. But tasting, people think that we walk around just tasting all the time in this industry and we don't. It's maybe 2% of the job that we actually do. A lot of the other job is cleaning. It mm. sounds odd, but cleaning. We've got to keep these wineries in incredible condition. We don't want any, any, any microbiological loads to get into our wine. We want to be very defined about the way we make our wines. Yeah, uh, A lot of places will do wild ferment or indigenous fermented wines, but we've still got to keep the place clean to make sure we get the right yeast that are going into the wines. But a lot of it is cleaning. 
Mm. Clean tanks, clean pumps, clean lines, clean all your equipment you're bringing in. Yeah, there's a ton of cleaning, and oh, people yeah. wouldn't normally know that. No, no, you wouldn't. I, I think you're crushing all the romanticism around it here, Levi. I'm right. sorry. I'm just going to put <laughs> no, it. No, 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 no. You know, like, like, but this, but this is the goal, though. I mean, like this is what the whole program is based on, really. You know, quite frankly, is this? It's uncovering some of these hidden details about it, and like, and obviously the work that goes in behind it. You made that comment in jest, but. But all the same, I mean, it's a business for one, but then also too, like to do it well, you have to have these systems in place and you have to have things structured in such a way that it's going to allow for success and it's going to allow for. Absolutely. So yeah, no, it's great. And you know what? Most of us all start on the floor. And when I say the floor, we all start as seller hands. Yeah. So we've got to learn how to run a pump, how to fix a pump, how to clean a tank. That's it, man. Exactly, right? And when something goes wrong, it's not, I've got to go see the boss and get this fixed. It's, I've got to fix it now. Yeah, there's no time for that. Yeah. No, exactly. I've got to get this done. It's a lot of thinking outside the box. Mm. I've got to get this job done. How am I going to do it? And as you learn on the floor, as you learn what the winemaker wants, you know when to fix it and when to go to them. You know when there's an issue and how to fix it yourself or know when to go, okay, I need to go tell the boss about this. What are we going to do? Right, right, right. I was always told that go to the winemaker with a solution. Always have an answer. It might not be the right answer, but it shows you've well, thought least, about yeah, it. Yeah, you, you've, you've thought of something. You don't yeah. just walk up and go, it's broken. No, no, no. Have an idea on how to fix it. The winemaker will go, hey, you've thought. Good stuff. There you go. But you're wrong, buddy. Sorry. No, no. <laughs> nice, nice. Well, that's a lesson that probably applies right across the board Absolutely. You know, for anyone who's starting out and whatever they're doing. There's probably yeah, some sage advice there. Really quickly, too, to kind of give this overview of Jackson Triggs, like for listeners who don't know, like what size are we looking at? Some figures you could kind of like just throw out right now in terms sure. of Sure. Okay. So we are considered a medium sized winery. Okay. Jackson Triggs. People know Jackson Triggs is the brand, it's the number one selling brand in, in Canada. It, it is a massive brand, but what we actually do here at the estates isn't that big brand. At the estates, we do all the premium products that are involved with Jackson Tree. So we deal with the Entourage brand, the Grand Reserve brand, and a couple of Tier 2 brands. But most of it is the ultra-premium wine we, we make here. So we will probably do about anywhere between 800 to 1,000 tons. Okay? In perspective, the last winer is at Angel's Gate. Q probably did five to 600 tons. Okay. Hmm. At our big facility, they probably do about 500 tons in a day. Wow. Wow. Okay. okay. Yeah. So that gives you a bit of perspective. Yeah, it does, it take, definitely does. Yeah. It, give, it, it takes us 10 to 12 weeks to get through harvest. Okay. okay? That's to get through our 1,000 tons. Take the big facility, maybe two days to get through that. Okay. And that gives you a little bit of perspective on the amount of fruit that's coming in and how we treat that fruit when it comes in as well. We do a lot more hand harvesting fruit. It, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Mm. So as a as size goes, I, I think that gives you a little bit of perspective of what we're doing here. For sure. For sure. And I think you've kind of alluded to this, this next question a little bit already. I mean, in terms of your role there, state winemaker, you probably got your hands in a little bit of everything. Like you were just saying, like a, a lot of different elements that you're constantly engaged with, whether it's the engineering side, whether it's the machinery, whether it's, you know, this or that. What is a typical day like for you? I'd imagine you're probably pulled in several different directions, but. That's a really tough question because there's no typical day. 
as a winemaker, there is no, there's never the same day twice. Yeah. It's always something different. There's That's always- got to be beautiful. A beautiful thing. I kind of, I love it, right? You know, like you, you walk into the day and you're like, okay, I'm going to get this, this, and this done. And then it's something else. Or a curveball gets thrown at you and you've got a problem solve or work out how to do it. But there is no two days the same. I'm not like somebody that would come in and say, okay, I've got to have my coffee at 8 a.m. and then I've got my 8.30 meeting and then I've got a 9.30 meeting and then I've got to go to my smoke break. And, you don't have that. No, that's beautiful. That's great. And that's probably what, what you want, right? It keeps oh, things fresh. It keeps you on your toes. So Absolutely. It keeps me out of trouble. <laughs> that too. And, and, and then harvest is a whole different beast. You know, and Like I said, I work crazy hours over harvest, but I could be in at 8 o'clock in the morning. Sorry, seven, eight o'clock in the morning, tasting wine, tasting ferments, tasting juices, you know, like you yeah. don't do that for many other jobs in the world, right? No, probably not. Probably not. It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of yeah. fun. It's stressful, but a lot of fun. Yeah. All right. We're working on building up those romanticisms again here. So. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just crushing dreams here. <laughs> no, 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 no. That was great. Like that was gold. I, I'm, you know, I'm teasing you right now. Like I love all that stuff. And I think that's what you we want to hear too. People that are in the industry understand yeah. this. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. And that's, you that's, sort of get that it's, yeah, you know, he's speaking the truth. That's what yeah. actually happens. That's, that's what we people want to know. You know, that's Absolutely. what people want to know. That's what I want to know. So, no, I, I'm joking around here with you. I think it's great. And I'm glad you're sharing <laughs> all that stuff. Yeah. Maybe we could shift on over into a new segment here, a bit of a Q&A discovery. I've got some questions lined up for you. And the first one here, I mean, I did sort of go over your backstory when I was reading things off the top. But I'd like to kind of dig into that a little bit more. I know it's tough that when you're in a moment, you live in a moment, it's hard to be reflective on it. But now in probably listening to what, you know, all of that put together, and then just thinking about it, you know, I'd be curious if there are any particular moments along the way that now when you look back, we're defining, I mean, that they helped kind of bring you to where you're at right now. Is there anything that stands out in, in that journey? Absolutely. Absolutely. I was at the University of South Australia. I was doing my degree in food technology, microbiology, and I wanted to work in like a small food, small goods factory. Like I yeah. wanted to be a food technologist. I was on the precipice of finishing my degree and I went to do like a placement in a small goods factory. And I vividly remember we were working on like ham, you know, like the ham, you get deli ham, deli yeah, meat, yeah, that sort of, of course, thing yeah. that gets finely sliced. And I remember this guy sliding one clean off the table it fell on the floor. He picked it back up, put it on the table, and off he went. And I just went, oh, what have I done? Four <laughs> years of university, I've got to this. So I, I, I finished that, finished my degree. I only had a few weeks left to go and then sort of went, well, what am I going to do? Yeah. Like, what, what now? And this position came up at Shadow Yeldara. And I was trying to get into the laboratory there because all my work was laboratory-based. And he didn't take me on the lab, but he said, look, I've got cellar work going. And at that mm. time, it was the end of school. You know, I needed some work. I needed to stay out of trouble. I was living in Adelaide, so I had to drive to the Broxer every day, which it wasn't too bad. Long shifts, though, 12-hour shifts. I was working in the cellar. But I, the next piece I remember as well is we're bringing in all the big reds. And when you ferment reds, you ferment them on the skin. With whites, you press the grapes to get all the juice out of them. With reds, you put them all into like a big tank or a vat and you ferment them on the skins. In this case, it was a very old winery in Chateau Yodara that had these big concrete fermenters, which was like a concrete bunker, a cell in the ground. 
So all the grapes would get thrown in there and they would ferment them in these concrete vats. But eventually you had to get that all out and press it off and get all the remaining juice out of the wine, right, right. wine out of the grapes. So these guys would have a small piece of a uh, pallet, uh, probably three feet by three feet or something like that. It was only a tiny piece of pallet. Okay. And they would throw it on the top of this musk. They would jump in with a shovel and start digging it out. And there'd be a little conveyor that they'd dump this on and the conveyor would take it off to the presses. Mm. And I remember these guys just ripping their shirts off and going for it. They were just ripped. I couldn't believe it. You know, like these guys <laughs> were just going for it. There was old timers wandering around the place. They were sort of just sipping away at port, watching the young guys go for it. I'm like, I can do this. Yeah, my turn. Okay. Threw this pallet down and it almost killed me. Really? I was so unfit. I was buffing and puffing away <laughs> and they'd give me grief. Come on, Levi, get on with it sort of thing. <laughs> but the smells and the aromas that were coming from that vat were just, I remember them to this day. They were hypnotic. Oh, yeah. and, and I was sort of hooked from there. You're sold. That, that was a moment that I was like, wow, you know, beats dropping a piece of ham on the floor. You know, this is, it was hard work. It was ridiculously hard work. It was long hours, but there's a buzz and there's a feeling to it. You know, yeah. like it, it's unlike anything. It's unlike it sounds anything like it. Yeah. It sounds like it just sort of like grabbed hold of you right then. And, <laughs> and there. that was it. Like, this yeah. Is where and that was it. Run. Yeah. And from there, I got picked up at, in a lab position and did that for many years, but it, it resonated. Like, I still tell the story to this day. Yeah, yeah. No, no, thanks for sharing that. That was definitely a, a point in time for me. Going to the US and working in the US was very cool. Yeah. Right. Just having the opportunity to go and work there, working in California. I'd never been to the US before and understanding that oh, wow. yeah, California is pretty cool. You know, it was a lot of fun. And there was probably... Uh, 10 Australians, all of us, we, we got sent to this place in Gonzales in the middle of California. We got given a uh, model home. Okay. You know, the, the houses that, yeah. you know, they're trying to sell an estate yeah. and there's the one model home. Yeah. So I remember we all got thrown in this and everything was white. The furniture was white. Everything was white. I'm like, hang on. You've given this house to a bunch of Australian winemakers <laughs> that are filthy. You get filthy when you're making wine. Right, there's there's right. no two ways about it. You walk back and there's wine in your hair and skins in your hair and it's on your arms and you're drenched in it. You don't mean yeah. to be, but yeah, it just happens. It's filthy. Yeah. It just happens. And they gave us this house. And I remember being in there picking up like a jar of coffee and it was on a doily and it was all stuck. So there was three different doily, three different jars that all came up at one time. But we had a ball. It was incredible that they gave us this house. And off we went. We were given a massive, big uh, suburban SUV, the biggest suburban they've ever made. I'd never driven something like that before in my life. Bus, yeah. And off we'd go. We split into two groups and we worked one work night shift. The others worked days. And it was incredible, incredible yeah, feeling. Experience. 10 to 12 weeks of just hanging out with these guys and just working like dogs. It was a ton of fun. It's been fun. Yeah, it sounds fun. like it. And then you just, you get that taste for it. And then before you know it, it's a harvest in Canada and a harvest in, in New Zealand and you move around. Yeah, and the cultural elements, we were speaking about this, you know, off the top, you know, these experiences here and there, and you're experiencing not just like the, the winemaking industry, but everything surrounding it, the culture around it, you know, yeah. and that, that's gotta be fun. I mean, how can that not be really, <laughs> really, if you got the eye for it and it's something that you're, you're interested in anyway i mean that's you know it's sort of like a an extra cherry on top 
Absolutely. And and the people you meet along the way, you know, you meet people from different backgrounds, different walks of life, different size of wineries, guys whose parents own wineries, guys that work for massive big facilities, you know, they come from all different backgrounds and shapes and sizes and you end up sitting around and just talking. Yeah. You've got something yeah. in common. Yeah. Wine, you know, and the experiences. And good, you know, you start talking about well, what winery were you at last? Was it any good? And what's the winemaker like? And it's good fun, man. It's really good fun. Sorry, I digressed a little bit. No, there, no, no, that's great. Yeah, it's wonderful. It tends to happen. Yeah, no, no, that's perfect. It's perfect. It kind of like on on the heels of that, that previous question, and we're just kind of transitioning into this point about culture and, and whatnot, you know, being from Australia, you know, having formative experiences there, and then now being in Canada for a while. I mean, I'd be curious to hear what some of the differences are like in terms of, you know, the people, the culture. I mean, Australians and Canadians can be quite similar in a lot of respects, but, you know, on the Australian side, you have your industry there is, is, is quite well developed and it has some global recognition. Whereas on the Canadian side, I think the awareness is, is slowly coming along, but it's not at the same level just yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, maybe you could speak to those points a little bit. One thing I learned very early on is that Australia is bloody hot and Canada is bloody cold at times. Right? It, was, <laughs> yeah. it, was, it was a tough, tough lesson to learn. My first okay. ice wine harvest was a very tough one, but um. Yeah. Yeah, uh, look, Australia's got a lot of acclaim. Everybody knows Australian wines. Yeah. And Canada's an incredible growing wine community. It is. We're slowly growing acclaim across the world for our wines that we make. We are riding off the wave of ice wine. Ice wine is an incredible product that's made here. Yeah. And for a lot of times, we are we are the number one ice wine maker in the world, really. But we're now growing. We're moving from that. We need to diversify. We need to get larger and bigger. And, and I think a lot of the wines that we make here, especially sparkling wines, are going to be incredible world-renowned wines in the future. We've got a bright, bright future as a Canadian wine industry. It really is. Like the terroir we've got here, the climate we've got here, the soil types, the wines we make, the winemakers, the, the winery owners are incredible, passionate people. We've got an incredible industry that's just blossoming, just blossoming, and we're on the precipice of something incredibly big. Um, over the last few years, we've had a number of incredible trophy winners, not from Jackson Triggs, but from a number of wineries around this place that are really making people turn their heads to understand that Canada's not just ice wine. They've got an incredible future. Like, beware, beware. Like, this place is growing. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, every time I, you know, I'm being from Canada myself, every time I come back, you know, tasting this or that, and I always am struck by that. You know, it, it's always, it's really nice wines. And, when I return to Japan, I'm going into the liquor shop there, looking for something to buy. I go into the wine section, and I'm always looking. I'm always looking for those Canadian Absolutely. wines outside of the ice wine, and just haven't seen them yet. And it's always kind of baffled me a little bit. I'm just, you know, what is it? What's holding the industry back? Why aren't we getting our stuff out there a little bit more, a little bit faster? But it probably is just awareness and building the brand and a lot of these things. But Absolutely. Absolutely. And there are, I mean, I think there's a guy in Japan I think he's Heavenly Vines, I think he calls the place. He get, I think he's Canadian, and he gets a lot of Canadian wines over there and showcases. We need more people like that. We need more business partners like that that are going to show our wine. It, it is a slow growth. It is a slow growth, but I feel, yeah, we're on the cusp of something. It's the awareness, right? It's not the quality. The quality is there, and the it's developing, there. and it's getting better. It's just the awareness issue that takes time to, to build. Awareness, that, I and I mean, we don't have, the massive amounts of wine that Australia has got. 
or the US have got. You know, they've got vineyards all over the place and they can make an incredible amount of bulk wine that we just, we can't do. Yeah, We're all about premium wine and we just don't do those bulk wines that other other nations are able to do. Yeah. But watch this space. It's exciting times for Canada. Really exciting times. Uh, that's great to hear. That's great to hear. I look forward to, to tracking it and following along. Kind of answered your question. You happy with that? Yeah, no, no doubt. Beautiful. Sure. It's perfect. I, I kind of want to go back into your past a little bit here again. And I understand that in 2010 here, I'm just checking my notes. When you moved to Canada, you worked at Flat Rock Cellars. Mm-hmm. And your employment started at this smaller scale winery where fruit was hand sorted and selected. And you noted that you began to appreciate the quality of a gravity fed winery. Now, I mean, an acknowledgement that this program here, this podcast is not built on, you know, wine and wine podcast exclusively you know for me uh <laughs> we can change something. that give me time give me time <laughs> well this is a second guest here you know you know we, we could be onto something but um but yeah like this is something for me personally like I, I was not familiar with what that meant and when i kind of delved into it and i researched it it was, it was quite interesting to, to learn about mm-hmm. it and i was wondering if you could kind of enlighten listeners on what a gravity fed winery is and, and what it means basically like what, what are the benefits of it essentially absolutely before i do that I just come from New Zealand. I'd done a harvest in Marlborough. I tasted their Pinots. Beautiful. I went down to Central Otago. Incredible Pinots. And then I ended up at Flat Rock and Ontario. And I started tasting some of the Pinots there. They're on a par. New Zealand's got this incredible repertoire, this, this notoriety for doing incredible Pinots, like Oregon does as well. They've got these incredible Pinots that they make. And Canada was there. What they were doing at Flat Rock and what they were doing at a number of other wineries around here, on a par. We've just got to get people to understand that we can do it. So back to your question, gravity-fed winery. So the premise of gravity-fed winery is almost like, uh, if you envision like a car park, a multi-tiered car park, right? Whereas it comes in at one level of the car park, the fruit will come in, we will sort the fruit, it will go into tank at another level. It'll ferment at that level. Then it'll go into another level after it gets racked to settle out. And then it'll go into another level into the barrel cellar for maturation. But all that time, you don't use a pump. There's no need for a pump. So pumps can beat the fruit up and beat the wine up a bit. So they're trying to be as gentle as they can with that fruit. So they're taking all these really meticulous steps. Firstly, they hand harvest their fruit rather than machine harvest. So you got somebody out there picking the best bunches. If it's no good, drop it on the floor. Okay, let it go. Right, and then a machine would just come through and pick all of that up. Yeah, you've got bad. somebody out there and the winemaker or the viticulturalist to be with them and they'll be riding these guys. No, it'd be good. You know, not that fruit, not this fruit. You know, like they're very, very particular about what they want you to pick. So it starts with that out in the vineyard comes in, but then they take that next step. And that next step is you run it along a shaker table or a sorting table. And the shaker table just shakes out any any ladybugs or bugs or seeds or anything like that or, or leaves. It sort of shakes them out so you're not picking it up. But you've probably got four or five people standing around that table inspecting all the fruit, having a look at it. Is it good? Is there a bit in there I don't like? Chop that out, get rid of it. Is there any green? Get rid of that. Only the best fruit will go down that line. Okay, so they're taking these steps to make sure that you're getting the most premium wine you could get. So it'll go down that path and then it'll go into a tank. Let's say we're talking red wines. It'll go into a tank where we'll ferment it. 
and then that tank, they'll just, they won't pump it over, they'll just punch it down. So a punch down is like a big, uh, you know, like a potato masher? Yeah. Something like that, right? But on a big scale, right? So there's somebody there two to three times a day that gets up and pushes all the skins down underneath the juice. It wets the cap. It, it gives more skin to, to wine ratio. It, there's a number of benefacting factors that this can help the wine. It takes a lot of muscle. takes a fair bit of work, but it's good fun. The smells, the aromas are just incredible, right? So it'll go through, go through that process. The fermentation will finish, and then they'll drain that off. They'll drain all the really pretty juice off into the next layer. So it goes down a story in the car park. Okay. Sort of thing, yeah, right? yeah. So it will go down, and then what they'll do is they'll draw the press underneath that tank and drop all the skins into the press. Mm. The press will press off those skins, and then it will go down to another tank. Okay. And they'll, they just don't use any pumps all the right, way down. Right. And then when it gets to that final tank near the bottom, they'll let it settle out. You get these lees or siltiness that they just trying to keep clean. So they'll let it settle all out and then they'll rack the tank or like siphon the tank, the nice juice or the nice wine, sorry, off the top and they'll siphon that down into the barrels. Mm. Barrel cellar's right at the bottom of the facility. Yeah. Okay. So all those steps, they haven't had to use a pump. Wow. In perspective, a lot of other facilities would bring the fruit in, crush, distem. They would use a pump to pump it to the first tank. Right, and then those skins and that wine will sit in that first tank, and then they'll get a pump to pump the juice over. Okay, so the pump sits at the bottom, comes up over, and they do that three times a day instead of the punching down. Okay, and then when that's done, then they'll drop it down, press it off, but they'll use a pump to pump the juice okay. to another tank. Yeah, let it settle. Once it's settled, they'll use a pump to pump it down the barrel. And then there's different pumps and some pumps are a lot more gentle than others and there's different ways you can go about it. But the premise behind a gravity-fed winery is to try to knock that pump out be a lot more supple. What, what percentage of wineries would be using that technique, like roughly off the top of your head? I mean, that is tough. I've got no idea. Geez, you asked some tough questions. Would it be like a small, small percentage, like less than 10%? No, there's, there's be... quite a lot of wineries that do it. They understand. Okay. But it's a matter of, building a winery to do it yeah the infrastructure sounds like it's would be that you've got to. i mean you've got to build it with a mind this is what we're going to do we're going to be a gravity fed winery and this is how we're going to do it there's a winery next door to us that actually built an elevator within their winery to do it okay so they elevate the fruit up and then they start from the top and go down rather than just drive in right yeah there's different ways and methods you can go about it and it's um it was very cool to experience that and understand. Yeah, yeah. It's really interesting to hear it. And I like that metaphor that you use of the parking sort of garage sort of levels. I think that really like made it simple and, and that was great. We really kind of cleared it up and uh, yeah, just learning something new. <laughs> every five okay. minutes, I think every time you every time you open your mouth, I feel like I'm learning something new, which is great. And you, know? you know what? Again, this is another point about the culture of making wine. You're sitting around a, a sorting table for eight hours of your day going yeah. through fruit. You know, and there's usually music playing and everybody each day will get a choice to play their own music or, you know, just talk and get to know people and have a chat. It can be a little bit noisy at times and you you change jobs. Somebody might be on a forklift. Somebody might be sorting the table. Somebody might be moving the fruit around in a tank. But it's yeah. it's a culture and it's that it's bonding a, that you do. Yeah, with it. it's a people-driven business. It's a community sort of, you know, culture within, within the company or wherever you're working within the winery. Like it's, it's 
cultural elements that kind of all come together. It's a people business, you know, strikes me as at least, you know. You know well, while you say that, it, it goes a little bit further than that in that we're all in competition. Everybody wants to sell their wine, right? Yeah. End of the day, that's what we're in the business of. But if our neighbors have a problem in harvest, they'll call you. Mm. Hey, I need help. My forklift mm. died. Can you lend me a forklift? Absolutely. Go for it. Yeah. My, my way bridge is down. Can you weigh my fruit for me? Absolutely. Yeah. Like we will help each other to the ends of the earth to make sure you get through harvest. Hmm. We're there for each other. And I think that's anywhere in the world. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. Okay. Oh, that's awesome. And then that really shows that, illustrates that point of community involved. In it, it is all. a community. It is a community of winemakers. And when times are tough and when the chips are down, yeah, somebody will step in. Another winemaker, another winery, somebody will step in and give you a hand. That's you brilliant. just got to make a call. And it's, it's a beautiful community to be in. Now, when it comes to wine scoring and judging, hell no. You know, like every man for himself. <laughs> That's when the nails come out, yeah. No, no, no. You know, we all sit around and appreciate each other's wines and taste and talk. And, yeah. you know, at the end of harvest, we usually all get together and pull out bottles of wine from our previous harvest and we sit and talk and chat. And oh, there's a community. Nice. There's a wicked yeah. community. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, I got another question here, kind of transitioning to a different topic. You know, I understand Jackson Triggs has come to you know, represent a few different ideals, one being sort of an elegance, you know, quality, of course, uh, premier brand, but also to add, add even experiential. And what I'm referring to there is that at least at your winery, I mean, Jackson Triggs, you hold these events, you have an amphitheater there and you have recording artists that are coming through in these summer concert series. And uh, yeah, I mean, I'd be curious to know a little bit more about that side of your business and what that represents and how that all sort of fits into your brand. You know what? We need to give back to our community. Yeah. As a winery, we want to be a part of the community and the, the music industry is what we want to be a part of and we have been a part of for many, many years. It's, it's part of what Don Triggs, when he first made this winery, is what he wanted, the amphitheatre down there. Connects, right? It does, you know what? And like when the guys come down, only a Canadian artist have ever played here. Yeah. And when the guys come down, they're like, wow, we've done some shows in, in, in bars and clubs and, and arenas you know yeah. and concert halls and things like that but in a vineyard yeah they haven't done it in a vineyard you know and they're sitting there going this is wild we're tasting yeah. great wine magical we're in the middle of a vineyard, yeah. you know it's intimate and, and it's, it is you know it's only like 300 people something like that and to see one of your favorite bands uh coming down and play it's so much fun i think we had uh at the end of harvest or the end of the season we usually have one show for all staff and I think one year we had the Philosopher Kings come down and play. And everybody's sitting there and all of a sudden the clouds opened up. It poured with rain. And these guys are like, bugger, everybody on stage. So everybody got up out of their seats, came and sat on the, on the, under the amphitheatre, and he kept playing. And off he went. And yeah. it was an incredible Magical. experience. So much fun. But you feel that almost with every show that's here. Yeah. Because you're so close to the band or the group or, or the artist play, like, yeah. they just embrace you and you embrace them. But it becomes an incredible experience and so yeah. much fun. So much fun. Some of the bands that have come through are ones that I personally follow and read different comments from some of the artists. And it's just that. It's something that, like you said, they've, they've never done a show like that before. And they're kind of struck by the magical sort of atmosphere that it creates. And as an artist, as a performing artist, I mean, when you're feeling that way, I mean, you're going to put out a good performance. And then obviously the, the people that are there are going to feed off of that. And it just sort of creates this, this really nice sort of space for everyone to kind of take it all in, I would imagine. And uh, it, it, it is, it is. And it's a small space. Like 
300 people sounds like a lot. It's not. Like when you're there and shoulder to shoulder and there's seats you can sit down. Most people end up standing up and just dancing and having a hell of a good time. Yeah. And you can see that in the artists. They're like, this is great. This is a tiny little show. Let loose. Go for it. Yeah. yeah. It. Well, one of the oh. ones that uh, I, I think I was reading comments on not too long ago, I was researching him quite extensively. He was actually, I just had him on last week on this program, uh, Dan Mangan. He was just Oh, on. really? And yeah, wow. yeah. And uh, I, I've read comments for him, like, you know, how he's enjoyed playing there. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it, it strikes a few chords, one for the artist side and then two for for the people that are part of it and then on the business side it kind of brings it all together in such a nice way in this pure authentic sort of manner that that speaks to what the brand represents and uh and allows for these these special memories to be had or or created essentially right absolutely and it's a big part of what we do like people think it's just winemaking but we've got this back of house staff you've got chefs and, and wine pourers and psalms and, and guys that run the floors and do the tastings and they all come out and just give us a hand to put these shows together yeah so there's a lot of wine being sold and a lot of people having to do those extra yards to help us make these shows happen and it's all these guys that do it and it's become a bit of a subculture in itself right like we probably take on 20 or 30 people for summer here and these guys come in they're university students or retirees or we get a spread of people that just want to, I want to be a part of the wine industry. Mm. I want to learn. I want to start somewhere. So they start on the floor, yeah, pouring once wine. Once again, you know? community. And they, yeah, it's a community, right? And they come in and they start helping with these shows and it becomes a buzz and the show finishes and they're there cleaning up and having up at drinks and having a laugh about what happened in the night. You know, if you've ever worked in a restaurant or a bar or something like that. There's always like a story. Yeah, you know, there's always a story of what happens, but. I haven't seen Dan Mangan, so I'm going to put him on my list. I'd love to see him now that he's been on your show. Yeah, well, I'm going to be I'm going to be there for that show. So uh, there yeah. you go. All right, I'm on. Uh, I saw Sam Roberts recently. He puts on a wine. Oh yeah, he's another one of my favorites too. Yeah, yeah. like yeah. he's incredible. Watch, I've seen him play a couple of times now, and it's, he's always good, right? He's so good. And by the time you, people are just up and dancing, going wild, it's yeah. It's no, I know, I know. I, I, I love that. Yeah, no, no, I digress too. I mean, I love that series that you put out, and uh, you know, quite frankly, yeah, really excited to uh, to be taking in a couple of shows this year. I do have one more quick question here within the segment here, and we've kind of spoken to this a little bit, and I might be able to gather your response on this, but I'm still ask all the same. Is that like, what are some of the most rewarding experiences? I mean, we spoke to some of them right now and you've kind of like alluded to the, some other points, you know, what, what is it that's, you know, kept you in the industry as long as you have been part of it? I mean, what is it? People, man. Right? It's the people you get to work with. It really is like you get some characters, you get some incredibly possessed people, you know, that just are so driven for wine. You get winery owners that are out there like selling their wares and they're so driven to showcase what this region can do, you know, and then you get people, like I said, retirees that go, I love wine. I've loved it all my life. I want to know more about it, you know, and then you get people that never wanted to get involved in wine, stumble like I did, fell into a job and went, oh my goodness, this is what I want to do. Like the wines, yes, the, the winemaking part of things, is an obsession, mm-hmm. but it's it's the people in the industry, it's you know, and not, not only within the winery, the guys out in the vineyards that we work with, they're characters, absolute characters, you know, and you 
you get stuck having a conversation with one of them and you could whittle half your day away. The thing that's kept me going through most of this, most of the winemaking experience is the people that I work with. And I get to work with some wild, wild people. It's good fun. It really is. Making wine, yes, greatest job in the world. But the people that are involved in this industry. Another layers on top of it all. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of what I'm gathering from your responses. I mean, it seems to me that you're, you're someone who's totally engaged with it, obviously, but then also to just soaking it all up, literally, <laughs> like just enjoying it all. And what what better spot to be, to find yourself yeah. in, you know, professionally yeah. speaking, and then also personally speaking as well. You can kind of like meld those two areas together in your life. Yeah. You, you're going to find some satisfaction there, aren't you? Oh, absolutely. Like, and I can talk a lot, but I can listen quite well. And when you get talking to some of these guys, or even grape growers that we buy our fruit from, you know, we buy some of our fruit from grape growers. Most of it is our own fruit, but we buy some. But you're going out in the middle of harvest and you're going to taste their fruit and see what it's like. And they can get going and just start chatting away. Yeah. It's, it's, it's therapeutic. Yeah. In the middle of harvest, when you're under a ton of pressure, and yeah. you're trying to get things done and you're out there talking with a wine grower and you're just tasting his fruit and you start talking about how's harvest been for them and what have they been through, what have they seen, and you start getting a real vision for what's going on with the industry. And you talk to the next grower, they've got an idea. And you're just learning, just learning new just things, always exploring, just, just exercising that. That You know, you never stop learning. Oh, that's wonderful. It's wonderful if you can find that. And it sounds sounds to me like you have. So good for you. And that, that's that's great. All right. Well, we are transitioning into a new segment here, Levi, something called a water cooler story. And I'd love to hear what you've got for us. I mean, you know, a story that might have stood out to you, you know, across your career, something that you still kind of can go back to or generate some sort of feeling for you. What, what do you got for us? There's a lot. There really is. Um, taking my wife to New Zealand was a big one. The first harvest at Flat Rock here was, was a big one. California was huge. Coming to Jackson Triggs was a huge step in my career and something I've just loved. The guys here that I work with are phenomenal. But I did my first ice line harvest here at Jackson Triggs. Mm. And I heard a lot about it and I sort of dabbled at, at, at other places with it, but I'd never really done an ice wine harvest. So to do an ice wine harvest, it has to be negative eight degrees to be able to pick the fruit. We usually pick it at negative 10, to be sure. And we like it to be negative 10 for a good period of time. Our reasonings of vinifera, we usually, first chance we get, we get out and pick it. With Videl, we let it go through a cycle of freezing to frost. So you can imagine... An Australian boy coming from a 40-degree harvest in Australia, coming here, doing sparkling wine, then doing whites and reds, and then holding out to the middle of winter to get these ice wines in. Some new. I'm up for the challenge. I love it. So the first press we came in, we had the fruit come in. We have some of our growers press off some for us. We do some ourselves. Uh, a lot of guys have gone on holidays then already. Um, the team here is four cellar hands, a lab assistant, assistant winemaker, and myself. Most of the cellar hands had taken holidays, and we said it's okay because we got time. You know, it's not going to freeze. No, we, we got plenty of time. And this year, I think it was 2018, it got cold real quick before we knew it. We thought it was going to drag on and on. It did. So there was the three of us, myself, Phil Brown, the assistant winemaker, who's now stepped up. He's now the winemaker. Richie Bock, who is the lab technician. 
the three of us went out. We had to bring this ice wine in. So it had been picked. We just had to process it. And I, I had no idea. You know, I came into work with my normal jeans and a parka sort of thing on, and they looked at me like I was a bloody idiot because I was. They had overalls and boots and beanies and earmuffs, and I'm like, oh, I'm screwed here. Ended up, I went up to the local hardware store, picked up what I needed, came back, and I remember standing out on that crush pit, the three of us looking at each other, and the snow was just coming in sideways, just smacking me in the face, and there I am just freezing pulling this ice wine in, trying to get it into press. We're cursing each other. We're laughing at each other. We're just these <laughs> bloody idiots. And it epitomizes what the wine industry is like here. It's like, we just got to get the job done. Yeah. Are we cold? Are we tired? Has it been a long harvest? Yes, it is. But we're just going to get it done. And the three of us just, we got the job done. We got it pressed off. We got it into tang. But were we cold? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Freezing. Was- Came in, coffees, pizza for lunch, whatever. Yeah. Cold beer at the end of the day. But I vividly remember being out there just freezing. Never been so cold. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a story that, you know, for for wine enthusiasts from any other region of the world outside of Canada, I think, would have no idea what goes into that. Like, no. That's that's special. And, And a lot of other places, like, Australia will do their whites and reds, you know, and some fortifieds. You know, we do sparkling whites, reds, and then ice wine. It really elongates it. So when I say at the start we do a 10 to 12-week harvest, that doesn't include ice wine. We can drag out to February. Okay. So we might start in September, September, October, a bit of November, but then the ice wine drags out to February, March, you know, January if we're lucky in some of these years when I let people take holidays and I shouldn't. Because three of us end up doing the ice wine harvest. But right. yeah, that was uh, an experience. Loved it. Absolutely. Yeah. But yeah. I was cold. Yeah, it sounds like it. It sounds like it. This might be a kind of a nice segue into a new segment here, something called a crystal ball segment. Normally, what I'm looking here at is, uh, you know, a few trends, predictions, so on and so forth. And I mean, on this, on the heels of what we're just speaking about, you know, climate change and everything that's been going on. I mean, it's out there and we know what's going on as far as like the impacts of it all. But in the industry, which you're situated in, it's quite sensitive to all of that. Like, how do you, how do you manage that side of it where there's so much unpredictability with the weather? And it's it's just really the variance is so great now. At least that's what it seems to be. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. End of the day, we're farmers, eh? Yeah. We're not in the brewery industry where we can just buy hops in from around the world. We're not distillers where we can distill any sort of product. We are, we're up against Mother Nature, whatever she wants to give us, right? And you know what? It's interesting. I was reading a story recently about Pinot Noir in Oregon, and they're, they're getting a little bit angsty because it's warming up and it could be getting too warm for Pinot over there. You know, and it's sort of playing in our favour because we're moving into a warmer sort of climate. So our Pinots and Shards are just phenomenal because it's getting to that point where we are warming up that little bit warmer. You know, our harvests are coming a little bit sooner. We're farmers, you know, and we do have long, cold winters. In those long, cold winters, we do have some vines that die on us. There's no what you can do about it. You just got to roll with the punches, replant and go again, you know. But our viticulturalists are just stubborn, stubborn. They love it, you know. It's like... I talked to our viticulturist recently and I'm like, so we, we lost a lot of vines this harvest. He said, yeah. I'm like, are you concerned? No. Nah. 
happens every year. You know, he just goes about it, replants, it goes again. But those replants are becoming fewer and fewer, you know, and global warming is a terrible thing to be happening, you know. But as much as we look at the doom and gloom of it, I've always got to try and look at the sunny side of something, you know. You can't get bogged down in it. You've got to be positive and try to bring the positives out of it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, one thing I, I suppose that sort of gives us hope, or it gives me hope at least, is that, you know, with the evolution of everything that's going on within just like human culture and existence, you know, you have technology, you have science, you have all this data that's developing at such rates now that we are finding ways to kind of offset some of these issues for better, for worse, you know, it's sometimes yep. we just band-aid solutions, but other times we are finding like completely brand new ways of getting things done or pivoting in this direction or that direction to allow for, you know, growth to still occur in, in a different manner. And, and also too, I suppose like this idea of just framing things as maybe an opportunity, you know, like with the changing environment, maybe Canada warming up a little bit and, you know, it's, it's certainly not a good thing. Global not a great thing, thing is not but... good. No. Definitely not saying that, but you know, as far as a business and trying to pivot and and, and move and, and different things, in in a strange way, it might even feel sort of wrong to say this, but it might create a different opportunity to to grow something different or to produce something different as well. Absolutely. By the back end, I'm sure there's other wine regions that are looking at the same place, like Oregon. Maybe we can start planning Cap South, Cap Frog, right? Merlot. Right. Do we yeah. move more into those Bordeaux blends rather than looking at our Pinots? It's yeah. in Australia, they're looking at alternate varieties all over the place. Yeah. yeah. Like they're really changing and turning what they're doing. They're not just known for Shiraz anymore. Some of the alternate varieties that are coming out of there are phenomenal, phenomenal. Mm. So they're starting to learn and roll with the punches, right? We're, we're winemakers. We've always got to think outside the box. That's how great. do I get it done? How do yeah. we get it done? Okay, this is how we're going to do it. Yeah. Well, on that note, I mean, that might be a, a nice kind of way to close things out here, Levi. But I must say, I mean, it's been an absolutely brilliant conversation. I've loved every second of it. I felt along the way, I was just learning something new every time that you're opening your mouth. And I'm sure listeners are going to appreciate it all. So I can't thank you enough for coming on the show and taking some time to share all of this with us. It's been beautiful. Thank you very much for having me. This has been good fun. I'm looking forward to seeing you at JT. Yeah, yeah. Same here. Same here. Well, for those interested in learning more about Levi and his work, you can find him, follow him along at Artera Wines Canada, and also, of course, Jackson Triggs. And if you like today's show, please be sure to share. I mean, it goes a long ways. It helps. You can also rate, review, and subscribe wherever you access your podcasts. And head on over to YouTube. We do have a channel over there we recently launched where we will have some imagery associated with the actual conversation. So you'll be able to kind of check out some of the, the imagery of Jackson Triggs and, uh, and take in the whole experience in a different level. And of course, too, you know, don't forget to tune in to the next episode of Life as a, where we'll continue to explore and unearth the details of professions and the people behind them. I'm your host, Christopher Schoenwald. Until next time, stay curious about life and living.